Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. I'm one of these hip as my guests, and uh, we, have, we have a great show today because you know I'm a big music fan, and the only thing that I like when, when someone who's really knowledgeable on music is someone who's also a fellow Jersey guy, which my guest is. My guest is Matt Penfield. How you doing, Matt? Hey, Steve. How are you today? I'm good. I want to apologize. I'm on uh, Ventura Boulevard in uh, Los Angeles, Studio City, and it's pretty loud out here today. A lot, a-, of, a lot of people going by with mufflers. But other than that... Um, yeah, I'm great, man, and thank you so much for having me on Cooper Talk. Hey, no problem. So I got to ask you, just off the bat, we're both from New Jersey, and we talked before we, you came on air about how we both are proud of New Jersey. Why do you think? Why do you think we get such a bad rap? And it really irritates me, especially in LA, because I was there for 20 years, and people, because I grew up near Philadelphia, and people were like, "Aren't you from New York?" And I'd be like, "No," and they don't understand. Why do you think Jersey gets such a bad rap? Well, I think, uh, you know, I've always said that a lot of people's only impression of New Jersey is flying into Newark Airport and or driving maybe up and down the uh, turnpike. And I think because that area, there's a bunch of refineries and, you know, there's there's a bunch of industrial stuff going on. I think that people think that that's what the entire state is like, and it really isn't. In fact, the way I see New Jersey, Jersey's like a few different states because... You know, if you're in North Jersey or West, it's different than it is in Central or the Jersey Shore or South or all the way down, you know, near Long Beach Island or anything like that. I mean, I just, every, there's so many different areas with different personalities, different flavors in Jersey. And I love the state. I do. It's, it's been very good to me and it was a great place for me to grow up, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with you. Now, now with you, with, you know, you, you're big in music. Was it the Jersey sound when you were a kid that caught you, or how did you start this, uh, ending up this career and just being so hip into what's tuned, in tune with music? I mean, as a young kid, because we're about the same age, what were you listening to, and what, what, how old were you when you actually started really getting into music? Well, I mean, I started, I mean, listening to music and records when I was three years old, believe it or not. I mean, I was just, so I was hypnotized by the uh, 45 RPM singles players that they had back in the 1960s. And of course, my older brother and sister had records. Uh, my parents had bought me kitty records. I didn't want them. You know, in fact, when we moved from Dinell in New Jersey to East Brunswick, and they pulled out the refrigerator, all my kitty records were under there. I threw them under there. <laughs> That's how much I would do the rock and soul, you know, and, uh, and the pop music of that era. And... You know, but I, and I and I loved music from the time I was a kid, and I, I really kind of knew what I wanted to do at a very young age. I knew that I wanted to be involved in music somehow. I mean, I like everyone else had the fantasy of being, you know, the pop star or rock star, like any other kid at that age. And you know, you just have to use your imagination. And then, uh, you know, I realized how much I loved radio from a very young age. I mean, from you know, like four or five years old, listening to the radio. Listen to it in my parents' car, listening to it at home, listen to it on a transistor. I knew that I wanted to be involved in, uh, in radio. Or at least I, I was excited about the idea of turning people on to music, to feeling as passionate and, uh, about music as I was as a young kid. I, mean, I, I used to bring in records to show and tell when I was in kindergarten, you know, whatever the new record was that was out. That uh, you know, I'd, I'd start doing chores and mowing lawns and, uh, you know, delivering papers at a very, very young age so that I could do that. But um, to answer your question about whether it's a Jersey sound, you know what's really interesting is as a young, young kid, I didn't even realize where anyone was from. So whether it was the Critters or it was, you know, uh, Frankie Zod in the Four Seasons, I didn't really know who was from Jersey at that period of time. I mean, I just knew the records, the songs. But, um, you know... When I discovered Bruce Springsteen, um, you know, right before Born to Run came out, uh, I was a huge fan, obviously. That, that record just hypnotized me. I, you know, it just empowered me um, and loved the album. And then, of course, started checking into what else was going on in New Jersey. And you'd hear about bands. But, of course, there was no Internet then. So, 
you know, if you could read about them, or somebody would say something to records, or, oh, you got to check out the Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes record, you know? Um, so, for me, I loved the Jersey sound, but I was also into everything. It wasn't like just one thing. I didn't associate the music with New Jersey, except that I saw that in Bruce Springsteen and Asbury because of the Asbury Jukes, you know? Um, but I'm very, very proud of what they've been able to accomplish, and there's been so many great artists since that period, too, from New Jersey. So I'm very, very proud of what everybody's been able to accomplish. Well, it's funny, Leon, when we talk about music, and I still remember this because I, our big station, we had two in Philadelphia we listened to, WMMR or WYSP. And I still remember hearing uh, The Police for the first time and Joe Jackson for the first time in on MMR. And no one else is playing them. And I don't know why MMR is playing them, but it just caught me. And I was like, this this is cool. You know, when you hear bands, and as soon as I heard The Police, I said, these guys are going to be big. And it was just crazy when you would hear that music that you talk to your friends and no one really knew who those bands were at that time. No, and I love that period. I mean, I was already at, in, you know, like, I think it really started for me uh, being very adventurous with music when I discovered David Bowie when I was about 12 years old, uh, 11, 12, 13, and all of a sudden, everything's hitting at once. Puberty, I mean, I was obviously already into the Beatles and Credence and a bunch of other things, but Bowie uh, was a big turning point for me when I heard Diamond Dogs, Ziggy Stardust, and those albums, The Comfy Dory, The Latin Saint, and... That's when I knew there was other music out there. Plus, I had older brothers and sisters who had, you know, everything from the Bloors to the Velvet Underground. So, you know, I would listen to those records. And again, even if I was listening to The Grateful Dead, I had no idea about the social impact or anything else that was going on socially or in a microcosm or in this in a subculture. I was just really about the records. It was the records on records terms. So it turned out that... Um, what you're talking about, that was a, I was ready for something new at that period of time. And I embraced the punk thing and the new wave thing. So I, of course, loved the police. And I'll tell you a story. I saw the police in Philadelphia at the Wallet Street Theater for the first album. And a station that was there for a short period of time, WIOQ, yeah. had broadcast a concert from the Wallet Street Theater. It was the first album. They had You Can't Stand Losing You uh, twice because the police didn't have enough songs. But one of the funny things I wrote about in my book, you know, I wrote a book called All These Things That I've Done, My Insane, Improbable Rock Life, and it just talks about many of the adventures and encounters with a lot of the artists. But one of the funniest things ever, and I have to tell you this, Steve, is when we went, and it's in the book, this story, but when we went to buy tickets, back then, of course, there was no ticket. Uh, master, it was Ticketron, <laughs> and you would go to a record store or, or a cafe or or a luncheonette or a diner and buy your concert tickets, you know, and the gatekeepers would be there. So we showed up, a friend of mine and I, from East Brunswick, New Jersey, my friend Greg, we were there to buy police tickets, and they were, by the way, only $2 to see the police. And we went up, and the guy at the counter goes, yeah. Hope you really like this police band and like this show because these guys are going nowhere. That <laughs> was pretty funny. We laughed so hard. But you know what? I started going out to shows underage around that period of time, too, because the drinking age is still 18. So, you know, I'd see Joe Jackson at the Fastlane in Asbury Park doing the Look Sharp tour. You would see, you know, Elvis Costello at the Princeton University gym. Uh, I mean, there were just so many great shows. I mean, I I would happen to believe that that was a wonderful time to be, you know, becoming a, an adult or a young adult because I was out of shows, I mean, at least three or four nights a week. See, that's you know? awesome. I mean, that's, you know, it's funny you said Elvis Costello. I still remember when my buddy, we used to exchange Christmas albums, me and my friend Mark Esposito. For Christmas, we exchanged albums, and I remember I gave him Armed Forces, and inside there was a little 45, and it was Elvis Costello live from Hollywood High. And then years later, when I moved to L.A., I lived like two blocks from Hollywood High, and I was just like, wow. As a kid, you know, I was a, I was familiar with Hollywood High just because of that little 45. Yeah, you know, I was as well, and I loved that EP, um, because it had the piano version of Accidents Will Happen, and... I remember we were going to perform that at my high school talent show, but unfortunately, 
bunch of friends and, and uh, students were involved in a ma- major car accident, so they wouldn't let me perform at Daytona because it's sensitive by its title. Uh, but I loved that version, and we had rehearsed it. And it's funny, too, because, you know, since I'm in L.A. now living here, it's kind of like, you know, I'll drive down the street and I'll see Hollywood High on Sunset Boulevard, and I will think of the exact same thing that you think of, and that's that EP. <laughs> it's you know? it's crazy. I mean, especially if we're growing up for New, in New Jersey, because it was so far away back then. You know, you Hollywood was, and as you said, there was no internet, so Hollywood was just like on a map. You know, you didn't you didn't think like L.A. You didn't think that way when you were younger. You know, everything seemed magical. That's like when I went to the U.K. for the first time in 1989. I went on tour with the band, and then returned there many other times, including. One of the great experiences for me was to do our radio show for RSP in New York City. Uh, Leslie Fram and I got to do our morning show. One of the three stations in the U.S. who did their morning show from Abbey Road Studio 2, where the Beatles recorded everything. And that was really incredible. I mean, great experience. It had been the second time I was at Abbey Road. But the point I'm trying to make is that everything was so far away, and without the Internet making the world smaller, it was magical, and it was like, you know... <laughs> you know, you thought of these otherworldly places, and Hollywood, you're right, was one of those places. Now, you're you're following the bands around, and now do you go to college, or I know you end up DJing at the Melody, but what was in between then? I and mean, it's funny, because I used to go to Melody, a roommate of mine from college had moved up to North Jersey, and we used to go there when we would visit him after college in New Brunswick. But what was your, what was your, in high school, like your senior year, what was your, what was your goal? I mean, what did you want to do? Well, I wanted to get out and get into college radio. In fact, at 16, I had uh, done a pledge drive to be on the Rutgers station where I ended up doing many shows in many years at WRSU. I had uh, pledged with a few of my friends that were kicked in, too, so I could go on the air for an hour. And I played Elvis Costello, and I played things like that. You know, I please. Who else was out at that time? You know, Boomtown Rats and, uh, you know, The Jam. And, uh, you know, I... It, that, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I tried to get on the air, but you had to be a student. So that uh, I went to Middlesex County College for a year and then transferred over to Rutgers. Um, and my whole purpose of being at school was to be on the radio. <laughs> there really, it was a means to an end for me. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, classes were secondary. <laughs> so, you know, I... You know, love Rutgers, and they were very, very good to me. I, 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 again, I jumped out into the real world before I could graduate. So, even though I'm considered alumni there, and they talk about it quite a bit, um, and I've been in the alumni paper, I've been in the admissions video. I did not finish because I jumped into a job. You know. Now, how did you end up in the melody and, and was and DJing? It's funny is when you tell you know people DJing was different back then. It's not like now. DJ was like albums and, and you know, getting music going and not like now, I mean, where it's changed because, you know, you don't, you don't even need a turntable to DJ. You can just sit there with an iPhone almost. But how did you end up with the melody and what was the music you were picking and why did you think that music became popular? Well, here's what I think happened. I mean, the story starts where I knew I wanted to DJ out too. And at that age, you got to figure I'm about 19 years old. Drinking age is still 18, going to be 19 a year or so. Um, and then I kind of aged up with the, for better or for worse, I aged up with the uh, the drinking age. But um, it worked out well for me because I wanted to sit in clubs. I mean, I was one of those guys who would hear, hear music in the place and go, God, this is so stale, or this is boring. You know, boy, they could really use some good music to get the crowd moving and to, and to just bring up the energy level. So it was something that I wanted to do. Um, so what I what I did was I was teaching, at a, believe it or not, on Route 18 at a place called J.K.'s Talk of the Town, it was a strip bar, because it was the first job that I could get where I could spin records in a public place, you know? And it paid more than security or a convenience store while I was in <laughs> school and doing records. So um, how the melody thing happened was, I used to go to Crazy Eddie's on Route 18, which is the electronic store that also had a great record department, record store. Sell records and tapes. And um, I got friendly with a woman who worked there. Her name was Lourdes. And she um, 
was one of the managers, and she told me I needed to check out a band called the Boogles because she had she was definitely uh, had a crush on Tony Shanahan, who's now he's from Milltown, but he's now in the Patty Smith group. Has been for a while. He's played with so many people. I mean, a list from Robert Plant. I mean, I could go on and on, but um, but anyway, she liked Tony, so she said, "Why don't you come down to this place called the Melody and watch this band play?" So how that happened was I went there, and I said. Well, the music's okay. It was Motown, but it was the same, you know, like the, the same old, you know, Motown hits. You know, no disrespect to those songs because they're all classics. But you know, My Girl and you know some of the other ones were just, you know, it seemed a little tired to me. So I saw them play. I thought the guys did a great show, and I was introduced as one of the guys from the Rutgers radio station to. Uh, the owners of the melody, Cal and Steve. And I literally just said to them, I said, guys, you really need to get some better music in here. I said, you need to bring it up to date. There's a lot of cool stuff coming out now. There's a whole new scene, and you guys should be a part of it. Uh, and they go, well, why don't you make us some tapes? So I made cassettes, and then I made a series of cassettes. And they were, it was like Matt and Mitch A, Matt and B, Matt and C, or whatever. I, it was either numbers or it was letters. And it became so popular, what they noticed was people were coming in and just breaking into dancing. And this was not a dance club at the time. When I started DJing there, I was in the kitchen and putting my turntables <laughs> on a cutting board, you know, <laughs> my mixture, putting it up through the PA. So it happened very organically. People started dancing, asking for music. They, they love those tapes. Then they started stealing them. So they noticed that I was DJing over at Charlie's Uncle, the place where Richie Zamboras used to, you know, perform all the time acoustic over this band. And I was spinning there on Tuesday nights, and they were getting in three, four hundred people on the Tuesday night before, before the crackdown on drunk driving. So they came over there one night and said, "Hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you bring your equipment and spin at the melody?" I said, "Okay, we'll do that. Let's figure it out." So I started spinning in the kitchen, so people would have to come back and. Asked for requests and like peeked their head around like one of the poles by the kitchen. And uh, it was set up and it, people were going crazy. Eventually they knocked that wall down. And it was a long time before they had a conventional DJ group. And at one point, when we already had been packing the place out with a thousand people on a Friday or Saturday night um, or Thursday, they were, we, I was literally like against the wall on a, on a, uh, you know, like, like like on a riser, but not but not not like a stage. It was just a riser where people were also tables for people to drink. So you kind of once once you got back, you know, a busy night, you were there unless you could fight your way through to use the bathroom or go to the bar. So that's really how the whole melody thing happened. It was extremely organic. And then I started, believe it or not, Steve, training other DJs uh, in the area, and um, those people started DJing there as well, and it just turned into a a great uh, counterculture thing. How, how were you finding the music back then? Because once again, it's before the internet. And you know, it's like, I remember when I was in college, I went to Stockton and I remember the guy in an apartment next to me. Well, my one roommate was from Hong Kong, so he brought a lot of Ultravox and stuff like that. But another guy, you know, turned us like, Yeah, and this young guy was like a surfer dude from like Middletown or uh, up near the shore. Uh, and he turn me on to the Violent Femmes, but it wasn't, like, how were you finding these bands and starting to spin them? Because you probably turned on so many people to this music, but how were you finding out about them? I mean, because there's no... Well, here's the thing. I, I read a lot, but here, I, I would go out on every week and go to record stores, and at that period of time, you know, in the city, there was Bleaker Bobs and Golden Disc. Um, in New Jersey, there was Vintage Vinyl and Chic Thrills in New Brunswick. Uh, where I would always go, and I would talk to the people that worked there and find out what was new that was coming in. Um, and I would, you know, I was just a sponge for the music, and I would take a chance on records. Even when I was a kid in junior high, I would see if the record album looked cool, and the cover looked interesting, or, or there was a name on there that was uh, was associated with another band. Just like, here's an example. Since Jack Douglas produced Toys in the Attic and Get Your Wings and Rocks for Aerosmith, when Cheap Tricks' first record came out, it said, produced by Jack Douglas. I said, well, these guys might be cool because, you know, <laughs> Jack Douglas, Aerosmith. So, you know, it was always by association. Sometimes you would buy a record if the names are familiar or they had a special guest. 
But for how I found out, literally, was I was just always on the hunt. And I started, around the time that I was uh, DJing into Melody, I was literally um, going to record stores three times a week. So I'd go to Manhattan, I'd go to Ir- Irving, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Irvington, New Jersey, where the original vintage vinyl was. And I'd go to Cheap Thrills in New Brunswick. Eventually, my friend Judy had opened a record store, too, that was great in New Brunswick, called Music in a Different Kitchen. So I'd go there and get a lot of my records. So, you know, the good news was, because you were in New Jersey, and you were in between Philly and New York, you know, there was a lot of culture and people that were uh, into music. So... That's how I did it, and I literally would always take chances on records, but it was fun, and I just, it became, you know, a passion and obsession for me to be able to turn people on to new things that they didn't know about, you know? And that was part of my college radio show, too. And another way to find out about records was the things that were being shipped by the record companies or being dropped off by local bands at the radio stations. So, you know, I mean, I I used every resource I could back then. It's, uh, It's a much different world now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, really. Now, now you were you were doing the college radio, and then how did you switch into? Uh, I believe you went to WHTG. How did that happen? What was that? Was that? Well, here's the, what happened. Um, you know, I was I was uh, you know I I gone to some events for LIR and you know D, which became DRE, and um, but I knew I needed to break into radio commercially somewhere, and I can thank Rich Robinson and uh, Mike Marone for uh, you know getting things going over at uh, HTG, they convinced Fake 8, the owner, to let them program the FM radio station because there was nothing to lose. You know, there wasn't really any advertising being brought in, or not much. Um, and so they took that chance, and a friend of mine who uh, I knew from college, Brian Bruby, came into the record store. I was standing in the record store in Music in a Different Kitchen. He said, Matt, hey, there's a new station that I think you should be on. I said, really? Where is it? He goes, well, somewhere down the shore, but it's this signal, 106.3, and they're playing some cool stuff. And at that point, Mike Marone was just bringing in his personal record collection. And when I started there, I was bringing in some of my records as well. So it was a freeform FM commercial station um, in the spirit of what was done in the late 60s, early 70s. And... Man, I'll tell you, it was it was really really fun, and I started there and I did weekends and I did weekends for many a year there. And the station got more and more exposed. Uh, I, I ended up making a demo, and giving it to Mike and Rich, and they said, "Yeah, we're going to hire you." And eventually, uh, when some management changes took place, I became music director, and that's when the industry itself, when I got um, admission to the industry, not just hustling, but where. I was having contact every single, uh, you know, day with people at the record companies and management companies and concert companies, because as music director, that's your job. You know, you're supposed to be the one who is, uh, you know, in touch with the labels and hearing everything new that's out, deciding what is good to play and what is not. Um, and of course, you do that with the program director. But um, yeah, so that's really how the whole thing started. It started very again. It was another one of those organic situations, and I loved HTG. And when I became music director and then program director, I mean, that was, you know, when alternative music hit the mainstream, so the timing was incredible. And uh, it was great to be there to see, see all that excitement. And it was great to be there even before it broke through mainstream. You know, when bands like R.E.M., The Cure, and The Smiths, and New Order, and Depeche Mode, and all that stuff was out because, you know, again, at that period of time, alternative bands weren't selling a lot of records, but it didn't matter because, they, they, you know, they had a big enough cult following that they continued to make records and be adventurous. So it was, uh, that, that's how everything went down there. And, you know, I love my memories of HDG. I really do. And the melody for that matter. Now, now, no, no. So. Now, when you were program when you were program director, was there any bands that just missed, like that you thought when you heard them, you said, you know, at, in that time, like when you know the Cure and all was building up. Was there any bands that you heard and you said, these this this group's going to hit it big, and they didn't? Was there any bands that you got disappointed in by the music you personally picked, and even if you loved or not, but just disappointed that they didn't get success? Well, yeah, I mean, there were a couple bands in particular that we really championed, but um, 
we're, we championed many bands. And a lot of them, you know, we helped get started, like 311. And then when I got to MTV and I was in the music department there, helped them get their buzz clip where they all of a sudden, you know, it really happened. It became a national thing. Uh, bands that didn't make it, I mean, obviously, uh, bands that I thought should have been much bigger, Dramarama, I loved. I mean, that's, I, Dramarama definitely had a following, still does. Uh, Johnny Eastdale is, is still out touring with the band, and they're phenomenal. But I thought that they should have been huge in a household name. And although they were in California, in Los Angeles, in San Diego, and the Jersey Shore because of HDG, they deserve to be much, much bigger, Dramarama. I thought they were an incredible band. I still do. And there was a band called The Wonder Stuff that I wanted to see go big. They were huge in the UK. In fact, the headlines uh, Reading Festival with Nirvana and Public Enemy, and I was there, uh, you know, in 92. They were another band that we championed. Um, and, again, it just didn't happen for them in the States. It happened in the U.K. So, in the U.K., they had, like, a number one album, number one singles. Here, you know, it was a, it was, it was a harder road, and it never actually came to fruition. So, yeah, there, and, and that's only an example of two, but... Um, you know, there are tons of people and bands, and this is, you know, I got a front row seat for that while I was working at Columbia Records when I was A&R senior director there, and then, uh, you know, vice president of artist development and A&R for rock at Columbia. There were records of mine that were successful, like Coheed and Cambria and, uh, you know, Crossfade, and then there were records that I loved that it just broke my heart that these guys didn't get the shot, and there's only so many reasons and it's the same with radio, it's the same with the record company, same with every aspect of the music business. Yeah. I mean, it's just things, you know, the planets have got to align. Yeah. Or a slow, incredible build, we're making all the right decisions. And, it's, you know, we all know that for every success story, there's 25 that are not. You yeah, know? I mean, I'm, I'm, a big fan, I'm a big fan of Dramarama, and it's funny, when I used to record my show in the studio, I had John on my show. And he actually brought his guitar, and he played. I love anything, 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 and he played that. And so I always, I'm always happy to say, I have a one of one of a kind version where he sat in the studio and played it for me. And I'd always, I'm always like, that's cool. It was really a dark, morose acoustic set, and it's yeah, Drumarama was a great band. They really were, and um, I'm glad they're still out playing and playing. You know, John, Johnny's a great songwriter, and I love him. I, I just do. So I mean. They, I mean, they, there were certainly pockets where they were a huge band, like in Jersey and in like in California. But there should, you know, again, it, that depends on the record company. You know, the record company has, the, you know, really gets behind an artist, and they have the, the goods. You know, they have the people that have their relationships that can get it into the right years so that it doesn't get missed. And you know, that's. That's one of the things, but I'm glad you have that version of that. And that song, as far as I'm concerned, will never, ever be uh, toppled. It's so great, and it's anything, anything. It's just one of those classics that people have been listening to for years. I've even DJed weddings of melody regulars who made that their wedding song. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're doing this. Everything seems to be very going very organically for you. And then, now how does the MTV? How does that happen? How do you get on MTV? Because you're at a station, and MTV. I mean, I forget what year did MTV start? Because I remember watching MTV all the time. Well, MTV started in the early '80s, but yeah. for me, um, I ended up getting on uh, TV there in a couple of different ways. It was like twenty. Uh, somebody just posted something, Mike Sauter and WHCZ1063's history, um, a picture of me and Dave Kendall, and Kendall's interviewing me at a Robin Hitchcock show, um, and I think, we, you know, that was two years before I filled in on 120 Minutes with Depeche Mode, and, um, and then that was about another year and a half before I started doing the show on a regular basis, and they gave me the show, um, but... Here's how that all happened. Really, uh, to, to you know, not go too deep, but I'll just say that they used to, they used to love HCG. You know, some of the people that lived either in Lower Manhattan or in Staten Island or in the lower part of Long Island, which could get our signal. The people that could get the signal loved the station, obviously, because it was such a passionate new music and just all music station that they started contacting me 
I met um, Kurt Stevick from MTV. He was in the music department. I met him out of the show. And we became friendly. And then they started tracking records with me. You know, they would go to different sources to find out if the record really had a temperature, or if it was doing well, or if it was just being hyped by the record company. So they loved the station, and I uh, ended up, you know, just giving information. He called me up and go, hey, Matt, is this thing real, or is it, is it bullshit? Or do you just it? And um, so that's really how my relationship with them started. And then I would go to some events with them, meet them, or see them at other events. And they loved the station so much that when Dave Kendall was actually, um, you know, like when he left 120 minutes, I saw it in a radio music trade, and I just called up Kurt Stefik very naively. Not arrogant, but naive. Naive more than anything, you know, and fearless at the moment. And I just said, hey, Kurt, what, what happened with Kendall? And he said, oh, you know, they blew him out. I said, wow. I go, well, are you guys got a host yet for 120? And he goes, no, they're looking into it, but they're letting the artists host now. And I said, oh, man, you know, you should have somebody like me host that show who knows about music and knows the artist and loves the artist. And he goes, you know, I don't know if you're, if you're aged out of that yet or if you're in the tent. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was unbelievable because you think about it, I was on the TV for years after that, but he wasn't sure whether, and I think more or less it comes down to the bald head, you know. Right. At this point, there were no bald guys. Everybody had really nice hair on, on TV. So he uh, spoke to the powers that be, Called me back later that day and said to come in for an audition. The 120, as influential on how great the show was and how much I love it, how proud I am of being a part of its history. Um, it wasn't the number one priority, so it took a few weeks, maybe even a couple months before they finally had me in the audition. I'd never done television before. I went into the studio. I had to talk about myself, talk about music. You know, you know what I mean? And uh, it was cool because. They just knew, Depeche Mode came in and said that they didn't want to host because all the other artists were throwing the videos. They decided they didn't want to, so they called me up and said, hey, here's your chance. And that was the first time I ever went on TV. Other than, oh yeah, for a moment in the real world, I'm in that at HTG in the Melody because the one guy, Andre, was in a band called Rain Dance in Jersey, even though they came out from Detroit. And uh, one of those guys now is actually in Queens of the Stone Age, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. But, um, but yeah, that was a, so, so there were a couple things where I was sprinkled into some other shows and then eventually filled in. And I thought it went pretty well, but I also thought I was a bit stiff, to be honest with you. I mean, I, you know, it was the first time I was like a deer in headlights, really, in some ways. But I had the opportunity after I went back there uh, to work in the music department. Eventually they said, hey, Oasis are coming on and they don't want to host. They want, they want someone else to, to do the interview and throw it in the videos. So that's where I got my chance. And then they saw that and then they gave me the show immediately after that. Well, you had a few shows. I mean, you, you started burgeoning, uh, you know, doing well there. What do you think? Why do you think that you did well? And why was it because you had the knowledge and, and you were you knew the music? Because, you know, it's MTV. You know, we always think of, you know, you, you think back to the old days. Like, no one remembers Kevin Seal, but no one really was a fan of that guy. I think that was his name. And it's just certain VJs. Oh, I like Kevin, too. Kevin, I thought was great. Yeah. And, and, but you know, it's funny. I'm friends now with all the old VJs and, like, the, the early crew, you know, Mark Goodman and Mark planning you know alan hunter right you know unfortunately we lost jj but um they've always been very very cool and you know for me i think the reason why in fact i know the reason why they started bringing me into other shows was they were doing some research and testing and they found that i at the point at that period of time i, I was the highest rated dj but in research um Maybe not on the air because of other shows, but you know, because I was still doing you know late night shows. But um, and then the least burned is what they call it. It's like a Q score. So they were like, you know, then why don't we try to have them do a few other things? And the other thing that was interesting that I found out back then was that it wasn't just the white rock audience that the blacks and Hispanics were also fans and were also liked what I was doing on the air. So these are the things that were factors. In the research that MTV did, that is, I can only guess is the reason why 
I started doing a bunch more shows and being on during the day and other things, you know. Now, though, you eventually you left to go to Universal. How did that come about? To uh, Didn't you do a uh, farm oh, club? Oh, well, here's that one. Well, you know, that was Jimmy Ivey. And recently, there's a short clip in the TV, and, uh, not TV, <laughs> the Fire ones. Excuse me. And I, uh, that was not a, a Slurian slip. Because um, I love Jimmy Ivey and Dre and all those guys. Uh, I got to move to California. I found out in a very organic way, the same way. Somebody said, you know, you really should be a part of this new thing they're creating, which is a website. So that's the internet. It's a competition. So that predated American Idol and The Voice um, and any of that stuff. And it's a record label. So Jimmy Ivey and Doug Morris had this idea to do a thing called farmclub.com because they wanted to be the farm club. Like in baseball for their other labels, whether that would be Atlantic or whether that would be Interscope and or any of the universal labels. So we I moved to California and started hosting that show with Ali Lantry and um, I worked with this woman named Archie Marcy and now is the producer of the voice. And it was the first show that ever did what you call packages on 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 people that were going to be on the show, which is basically like would do the short story, the thing that you see when they go to their homes, where they go to where they work, where they talk to their families. When they when they have those stories, they're called packages. We were the first show to ever do that, and it was we we conceived that in a hotel room, Audrey and I. And again, like I said, she's still doing snatches doing the voice. Uh, on the Sunset Boulevard in the Montreal, we were sitting there and said, well, what else are we going to do with these bands? That, because it's about people uploading to this website, unsigned bands, and then flying them in to play on the same stage with U2 and, and Eminem. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty incredible experience. Uh, but because of the, we were just too early. And Jimmy always says that to me. He'll go, man, we were just way too early. We were before everything started to happen. I mean, right in the middle of when our show happened, Napster happened. So it was beginning, but, but you know, the, the, the whole social media, social online thing had, had not happened yet. So, you know, so you're doing, pretty amazing thinking back. You're doing this stuff, you know, you're, you're basically on, you know, DJing and that. Now, how do you end up, as you said, you end up going to the... Uh, to the record company. How did you end up, how, how did that happen? Because well, here's was, what happened. I mean, the show lasted close to two years, but when the internet, when the dot-coms became dot-bombs and when Silicon Valley had that bottom fallout on it um, at that period of time, it was also the same time that a brilliant idea uh, went, uh, went public music, the artist direct, um, and then it tanked, so everybody got cold feet uh, at that point. So a, a lot of our financing was pulled out, and it was restructured. So when that happened, the show wasn't long for TV. It was killing. We were doing great. There was, there was a picture of me and Dre on stage uh, in the business section of the New York Times and how, how the show was selling so many records because it came on right after the two highest-rated hours of Cape Raw and War at that period of time was restless super hyped and um you know so so it was doing extremely well but after that restructuring we knew it wasn't long for the world we also lost our lead in because it went to a different network so with all these factors involved i knew that i was going to be doing something else sometime shortly and i knew that i, I always wanted to do a and i always wanted to work in a record company i always wanted to sign bands to oversee to make another records I thought it was fascinating, and because I was always a forward thinker, uh, I, you know, I thought it was a perfect kind of job for myself, and uh, it turned out that I had been offered another job, or a job that was, was basically going to be on its way at Epic uh, before I took the job with Jimmy Ivey, because there was, a, there was an element of A&R to that as well, um, and what happened was Columbia was looking for someone in the rock era area, you know what I mean? So, and it, 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 it sounds like they said, but it's been a little while since Alice and Chains. So they came to me and said, uh, you know, we think you could do this. And I was like, man, I'd love to do this. So uh, the only stipulation was I either was a consultant in California 
or I was going to move back to New York, New Jersey, and uh, and be a senior director and eventually promoted to vice president, which happened. But, you know, I uh, left California at the time. I really was happy here. I didn't, you know, I... I love I love New Jersey, New York, but I just at that period of time I was like, oh wow, you know the weather. It, <laughs> there's another winter coming around the corner. So I moved back and I worked out in New York City. I had a great, I had a really great experience, but I also had a very incredible learning experience. Like everything else, you know, you know, you see all the successes, but occasionally, you know, you you know, you never. A lot of times, you never see the ones that almost got there, and that's. Where, you know, you, no matter what, every one of them you put all your energy into. You know what I mean? Put everything into it. And so I loved it. I had a great experience, but, uh, and I had successes and gold and platinum records, but there were a lot of bands that I worked with that it broke my heart that they didn't, uh, get the shot or didn't connect. So, but that's just part of the business, part of any business. You know what I mean? But the passion, my passion has never waned false. You know what I mean, Steve? I love music, and I, I'm literally standing in front of Freak Beat Records, a record store, because you know I'm going to go pick up some vinyl. It's literally here on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, and when I'm done talking to you, I'm going to run in there and grab a record and uh, this new national album on vinyl, and then I'm going to, uh, then I'm going to head to do some work. But uh, yeah, man, that's it. I mean. Can you hear me all right? Because yeah, it's really I, loud. Out I hear you great. I hear I can hear you fine. Um, so now, now, what brought you back to LA? I mean, you you were you were de- you went back to DJing in New York. Yeah, well, I DJed in New York. I was on RXP until they sold it, and that was a great radio station. We did a lot of work, built the station up. But as in any other business, you know, you know, my friend once said to me, "Oh, there's two kinds of people in radio: one who uh, one who just got fired, and one who has yet to be." let go or the station sold out from <laughs> and you know I mean I consider myself blessed I've been doing you know commercial radio for 33 years and uh, TV on and off for 22 but um, you know uh, what brought me to LA was what first brought me to San Francisco I went to San Francisco in the mornings for close to two years at uh, a radio station there called KFOG and although I love San Francisco and the people I was I just knew I had the opportunity to come down here to uh, Los Angeles. And I miss Los Angeles, and I have a lot of friends here. Uh, I'm in recovery, too, so that's the other thing. I have a huge network of people in, in uh, Los Angeles. I have a lot of friends in San Francisco who are also in recovery. But, you know, for people that don't drink or don't use drugs, and people that are, you know, working on maintaining a sober lifestyle, L.A. is one of the greatest places. I mean, you, you can do it anywhere, but, you know, I just really like the support. And there were a lot of friends who moved from the East Coast that I knew out here. So L.A. is just like, it's almost like moving back into an old neighborhood in Jersey for me. So I, that's why I'm out here now. And I actually do my radio shows. I have two shows. Uh, one is called Two Hours of Matt Pinkfield. Hence, we couldn't get the rights to 120 minutes. And, uh, <laughs> And that's on that's on five nights a week uh, in Chicago, Minneapolis, Nashville, Buffalo, uh, Tucson. I mean, I, I, I can't name all the markets, but it's on in over twenty cities. Five nights a week, I'm on. I also have a podcast called Two Hours of Pink Hill, where I'm doing it on Pure Speed. And then I do a show called Flashback, which is a show that was in existence twenty five years before I took it over. It was a classic rock history show, and I've been doing that show for seven years. And I've been doing uh, two hours for a year and a half. So they're both syndicated to Westwood One. So they have uh, studios here in Culver City, and that's where I go and go to work five days a week. You know, and take and do all my shows and stuff. So that's what brought me to Los Angeles. Plus, it's just so great to be here. The weather does not suck. You know? Oh, I know. Believe me, I'm, I'm not waiting. I'm not looking forward to the first winter. But I, did, I was traveling for a while, so I would, I would go back and forth here. Now I got to ask you about one more thing. Uh, the book. How did the book come? How did the book come about? And 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 were you excited right. to write the book? The book. Yeah. Well, the book was amazing. My friend Mitchell Cohen co-wrote the book with me, and it made sense because Mitchell's a great writer, but he's also we worked together and we're both vice presidents at Columbia Records, so. You know, he really, even though he's 10 years older than me, he really knew 
and we worked on this book for a year. But, you know, the thing, the, the, how that happened was, for years, members of bands, like whether it's the guys from Pearl Jam or, or Soundgarden, or, I mean, I'm just using these as examples, or, you know, Damon Auburn from Blur and Gorillaz. Every, we always said to me, dude, you've got so many great stories, you've got to write a book, you've got to write a book. So I would constantly hear that. And then Danny Goldberg, who used to manage Nirvana and Stevie Nicks and, um, you know, ran a bunch of record companies from Warner's Atlanta, you name it. Um, Danny and I were, were good friends. And he said to me, he said, Matt, he goes, you know, you should write a book. So we did a proposal. He and I worked on it together. And his book was an inspiration to me. He wrote a book called Bumping Into Geniuses about his relationships with, you know, with Kurt Cobain. And, and Cobain called him uh, more of a father to him than his real father. I mean, that's how much they loved him. So Danny's a good guy. And he said, man, listen, you should write a proposal, which is what I did. And, he, and then he, he introduced me to a literary agent uh, over at Paradigm, who's now out on their own, doing their own thing. But they got me a book deal. They, they brought it to Simon & Schuster and to Scribner, and, which was incredible. I was, you know, because certainly there were people that saw this genre-specific, and they probably weren't interested, but Scribner were. And, they're, you know, what a history they have. I thought it was almost... I laughed because I saw in their Twitter description, it said, founded in 1864 by Charles Scribner. Our authors include Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Stephen King, you know, <laughs> Chuck Klosterman. I was like, what the hell am I doing in that list of people? <laughs> you know, but I was grateful. And um, they did a great job. And, you know, it, they were involved in everything from design to cover to... Just, you know, I mean, I had great editors over there and, and great promotion of PR people. So I really, you know, I, it was a great experience for me. And it's not even over because there's going to be a paperback of the book coming out eventually. But you can still purchase the hardcover nonfiction. And then you can also get the book on Tinder. Uh, I, not Tinder. <laughs> I meant Kindle. Right. Kindle. And by the way, I, I don't use Tinder, you know. Um, Kindle book. And it's on books on CD and audible.com. But, um, and that was really fun. But yes, yeah, so, so that was how the book went down. And the book was a love letter to music and kind of about the common thread of the dream of working in music. And now I pitch myself still to this day. You know, I really do. I still pitch myself, you know, when I get to do some of the things that I've done and the relationships that I have and things that I've been able to witness and be a part of. Um, I never take it for a day for granted, you know? That's good. Now, now, is there any books that you wanted to put in the book but you couldn't? Or did you need to get clearance from the artists to put the stories in? Or how's that? Yeah, look? I mean, absolutely. I did do that. And there were, you know, I, I went through an entire, uh, entire, excuse me, a legal vetting situation where we went through the whole book and where we thought it might cause a little bit of problems or could result in any kind of lawsuit. For any silly reason at all, because you know, it's uh, I would change the names. But as far as the artists go, all the artists knew they were going to be in it, and they were all fine with everything that I wrote. You know, so that uh, that was it. I mean, it was one. I was. It was more on the personal level of things with illegal betting. There was nothing else because you know my book was not there to throw dirt and trash. It was there to celebrate. You know, I mean, these artists now. So. With your career, who can you say is one of your, is your? Can you name a favorite band? Because you've been around music for so long. Do you have anyone that's just your outright favorite band? I don't. It's so hard to say. I mean, because you know, look, I could just put the trio of the Beatles, Stones, and the Who right in the beginning. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I could start in '64. I can go back to Buddy Holly, and I could, you know, and Elvis, and you can come forward. I have so many bands that I love, and it's really music is you know, is the greatest mood changer, a mood enhancer in, on this planet. Music is, you know, it just is. And um, so there are so many different things I like for different times and different reasons, you know, um, because it's just so hard. Uh, if you go to my book, I list the top, my, my top 50 albums from each decade from the 60s to the 2000s. But 
even that was painful for me. It was the hardest part of writing the book because I had to leave out a bunch of albums that I loved because 50 was just not enough. 30 decades. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was just such a great experience. I love the people say they were moved by the book. When people read it and say they were moved, they saw a lot of themselves in it. And, and when I mean themselves, I mean I just the same kind of passion and love for music that I had from the time I was a kid. Like you have, Steve. So, yeah. you know. Now, I'm very grateful that I've been able to do that as well. One last question, because I know like your albums. One last question. How have you seen okay. the music industry change, and do you like where it's going? No. Oh, I've seen it change a hundred times. It feels like. I feel like it's changing, constantly changing, all the time. Um, you know what I think? I think one of the things that's important to do if you're a guy like me, who's been around for... 30 plus years in the business is that I think you really have to go into everything with an open mind and you have to realize that you adjust to the way that things are as long as you're, you can achieve your ultimate goal, which is turning people on to music, helping out artists, you know what I mean? And finding music that you love and moves you. Um, so for me, I see a ton of change. It continues to evolve. Um, and I consider myself somebody who's evolving with, with technology and uh, with the music because uh, just something that has to be done. And uh, I don't know, you know, that's the 13-year-old kid inside of me. That's the 11-year-old kid, uh, Steve, that still loves records and just and loves music and is hungry to hear the great old records you love and hungry always to hear and find out about something you want to listen to it. Always looking to find something to love. You know? Cool. Well, I want to thank you for taking your time today. Now, what's your Twitter? Tell the people your Twitter. Oh, yeah. It's at Matt Tinfield, M-A-T-T-P-I-N-F-I-E-L-D. Now, on Facebook, I'm, I'm Matthew Pinfield as opposed to Matt Pinfield, and you'll see that one there. Um, and it's the one that I post in all the time. And then, uh, yeah, so that's, that's where that is. And if, if people listening, if you're Love music like I do. I would be honored if you'd read my book. Again, it's called All These Things That I've Done. Named after the killer song that Brendan Flowers said I inspired. And um, and uh, it's it's out there in every format. But Steve, thanks so much, man. And uh, hopefully I'll see you. I'll be back in Jersey in a few weeks uh, down there doing some some work. So cool. it'll be up. nice to be back home. Cool. Well, people, so people follow Matt Pinfield. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. It's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 640 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com, when I went through that heart problem five years ago. Change my diet so you can get my book. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. Just easy, easy cooking. You can buy it at barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com, but buy it from me at stopthesalt.com, and I'll sign it. And I will make more money. So you guys have a great day. Uh, this is Walk My Mind, and I'll talk to you soon.